Good morning. Let's open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. As you're finding your place there, let's stand together. We'll begin this morning by reading verses 26 through 33a. Acts chapter 13, beginning of verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we we pray that as we consider ultimate things this morning, as we answer an ultimate question, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would focus our minds and hearts on this text and the entirety of your salvation history, that we might understand what you are doing in the world, and what that means for us as your disciples. Pray for your help, Father. And we ask that your word have its way in us this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. What do you want to be when you grow up? Anybody ever asked that question or been asked that question? Let's just, by by raising our hands. If you don't raise your hand, I'm going to call you a liar in front of everybody. Everyone has been asked that question. Everyone has asked that question. It's something that that, that is a constant thing in our culture, particularly Western culture. What do you want to be when you grow up? a, A similar question is, what are your plans after high school? What's your agenda for your life? What's your passion? These questions that we ask so frequently, and and I'm convinced I don't really think a whole lot about, these questions assume that your identity and your purpose, these are things that are unique to you as an individual. You be you. You do you. 
Chart your own course, find your own passion, set your own agenda. Western individualism has, has poisoned the mind of man and has worked its way into the church in such a way that even we as believers think that we all have a separate identity and purpose unique to us as individuals. There are many very popular Christian books aimed at helping Christians find their unique purpose. These questions that I've just asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? What are your plans? What is your passion? Many believers live as if these are the ultimate questions of life. But we are going to consider a more ultimate question, a question that is so central to the entire existence of the world, so central to us as believers, that it casts these other questions outside the periphery of our concepts of identity and purpose. And that question is this, what is God's agenda for the world? And what implications does his agenda have for our lives? When we understand the agenda of God, we understand who we are and what our purpose is, and it's identical for every disciple of Christ. We are disciples... That's who we are, and we make disciples for His glory. That's what we do. Our, our, our equipping emphasis this year at Providence is, is evangelism. But the elders want to bring a series of messages over the next four weeks that focus not just on that narrow topic, but a series that gives the big picture of God's agenda, which will serve to put evangelism and every other privilege that we have in the context of God's agenda for the world and our part in that agenda. Because of what God is doing in the world, has been doing in the world, will continue to do in the world, His disciples make disciples. We're, we're using a quotation from Tony Payne as the, the theme statement for the series because it's a well-phrased biblical answer to the question that I've just posed. What is God's agenda for the world and what implications does that have for our lives? Here's our theme statement and the answer to that question. It's in your notes if you picked up notes on the way in. Because God's agenda for the world is to transfer us into Christ's kingdom and to transform us to be like Christ then our agenda is to press forwards toward maturity in Christ by prayerfully setting our minds on God's Word and to move others toward maturity in Christ by prayerfully speaking God's Word to them. Now that statement assumes a couple of things. First of all, it assumes that God's agenda must be our agenda. God's agenda is transferring lost people into Christ's kingdom and transforming saved people into the image of Christ. As believers, we belong to Him. We exist to know and glorify Him. Therefore, His agenda must be our agenda. Second, the second thing that this statement assumes is that God's means must be our means. God's means of accomplishing His agenda is the ministry of the Word. Lost people are saved by hearing the Word of Christ. Saved people are matured by the Word of Christ dwelling in them richly. And so if we would participate in God's agenda, we must use His means ministering the Word of God to the lost and the saved. Our lives are are to be all about that, knowing Christ and making Him known. And during, during this series, the elders will be recommending 
series of, of books that we believe would be helpful to you as supplements for the, the message on each particular week. Each week there will be five copies of that, of that book available to be purchased um, in the foyer. They're on the shelves just as you, as you walk in the doors back there. There are two books out there right now. There's one book that, is, that, that coincides with the theme of this whole series, and then there's another book that coincides with the theme of this message. The, the first is entitled The Thing Is by Tony Payne, and it's a great companion for the whole series. If you want an idea of where this sermon series is going or a supplement to it to help you think more deeply about the things that the elders will be talking about over the coming weeks, that is the book. The other book is called God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts which explains the grand storyline of the Bible with Christ at its center, and it coincides with the theme of this one message. So our, our, big, our big idea for the next few weeks is God's agenda being our agenda. This morning, we're asking this question. What is the point? What's the point? What, what's the point of everything? What's the What's the one thing that drives everything that God does, everything that is in the Bible, everything that has happened in history, everything that man should do as God's creation? What's the point? Have you ever, have you ever wondered why we sing the particular songs that we sing on Sunday mornings? We, we, we don't just sing loosely Christian songs. We sing songs about the good news of Jesus Christ. We sing about Jesus. We pray in the name of Jesus. We talk about Jesus in our private conversations. We use the word gospel all the time. In fact, we hyphenate it and attach it to other words. No matter where we are in the Bible, whether it's an Old Testament book or a New Testament book, we understand that, that text to testify to Jesus Christ. Uh, to an outside observer, somebody who is not familiar with, with these things, it may appear that we are obsessed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But a, a, an important thing for us to ask ourselves or to think about this morning is, do we just have Jesus-colored glasses on? Do, have we trained ourselves to see Jesus where He isn't? as well as where he is, not just in the Bible, but in history. All churches have their quirks. Is, is this just ours? This, this Jesus-colored glasses thing? No. We do not have Jesus-colored glasses on. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the center of God's eternal plan. We see Christ in the Old Testament, not because we read him into the Old Testament, but because the Old Testament actually is about him. We see the gospel of Christ being worked out in history, not just because it's a small side story in man's long struggle on this earth, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is the story of history. We believe these things not because we have Jesus-colored glasses on, but because we believe what Jesus has said about himself and what the apostles have taught about him in the New Testament. We believe the New Testament. This is what the New Testament says about Jesus and about history and about all of Scripture. Now, one great text of Scripture that leads us in this direction of seeing Jesus as the center of all things is Acts 13, beginning in verse 13 where Paul explains to Jews and Gentiles how Jesus Christ is the great fulfillment of all God's plans and promises. This text is, it gives the point of the whole New Testament, which is the point in your notes. 
The first or the second point in your notes, maybe the first point in your notes, I don't remember. God's plans and promises are fulfilled in Christ. God's plans and promises are fulfilled in Christ. It's all about Jesus. Look with me at Acts 13, beginning in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. What an invitation. Paul and his companions, they're in the synagogue on the Sabbath, the law and the prophets. Old Testament's been read. And now the apostles have been asked, Hey, you guys have anything to say to us? Now, what is Paul going to say? Well, obviously he's going to talk about Jesus. But some might think that Paul will, he'll do a 180 degree pivot away from the law and the prophets in order to start talking about Jesus. That is not what he does. He camps in the law and prophets in order to talk about Jesus. Look at verse 16. So Paul stood up, motioning with his hands. He said, man of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now, why the, why the unnecessary history lesson? I mean, these are Jews he's talking about. They know these things. They've been to Sunday school all their life. They know everything that he's saying. When's he going to get to the gospel? Well, he's preaching the gospel. He is preaching the gospel even as he says these things. Everything that Paul said in those previous verses points either to a promise of Christ or the need for Christ. And when Paul says in verse 17, the God of people Israel chose our fathers, he's calling their attention back to Genesis chapter 12 when God chose Abraham and made numerous great promises to him. If you're taking notes, write down Genesis 12 verses 2 and 3. Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. There God graciously set apart Abram and his descendants to be God's special possession, and he promised to bless the entire earth through them. But every part of the history that Paul recalls in verses 17 through 22 is a painful reminder to the Jewish mind of their own repeated failure to be faithful to God and is in turn a warning that they need a Savior. Think with me back through this history that Paul recalls. Shortly after God led them out of Egypt with a strong arm, they turned in their hearts back to Egypt. Just the mention of that 40 years. All he needs to do is mention the 40 years in the wilderness. And the mind of the Jew is, is filled with a sense of failure. But Paul doesn't want to leave it to chance. He adds that phrase, he put up with them in the wilderness. 
This is an obstinate, unfaithful, idolatrous people. They've tested the faithfulness of God from the very beginning. That era demonstrated that something needed to be done in the hearts of these people to turn them to God. They couldn't do it themselves. Then God gave them the land that he promised to Abraham, defeating seven nations before them. And Paul mentions the judges then. The judges period is one of the darkest periods in the whole history of the nation, demonstrating perhaps better than any other place in the Old Testament the complete inability of these people to follow God faithfully. They hoard after other gods. There's a cycle of this in Judges. It happens over and over. They whore after other gods for which God brings judgment in the form of a foreign oppressor. And in response to their cry for mercy, then God raises up a deliverer judge to save them from that foreign oppressor. And while the deliverer judge is alive, the people would serve God. But when the judge died, they would go back to their false gods. The message of judges is these people need a deliverer judge who never dies. Verse 21, where Paul reminds them, They'd ask for a king. Our minds, their minds in this scene in Acts 13, they're called back to 1 Samuel where God took that request for a king. He took it as personal rejection. And Saul's kingship was a disaster. Even, even the mention of David in verse 22 is tainted. Yes, David is, is a man after God's own heart, but the comment about him doing all God's will is an almost ironic reminder that his sin with Bathsheba and its ramifications led to the rending of the kingdom, which would never be reunified. This greatest of all kings in the history of Israel set the nation on a course of disaster by his sin. David was the best king in Israel... His legacy shows Israel needs a better one. They need a better king than David. Look at verse 23. Of this man's offspring, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Before His coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Now, if if we're not reading the Bible carefully, we might think that Jesus is just the next character in this drama of salvation history. But in verse 23, Paul gives us a hint that Jesus is not just the next step in the story. He is the story. Jesus is the Savior whom God promised. God promised to give Jesus. God promised to send this Jesus to fix this overwhelming estrangement with God that Israel had experienced from the very beginning. But when, when and how did God promise this? Paul answers that question beginning in verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Two things very, very quickly we want to note here. First of all, everything that happened to Jesus in his passion was foretold by the prophets. The very prophets who are read in the synagogue every Sunday. 
But because the Jews did not understand their own scriptures, because they did not recognize the one to whom those scriptures referred, namely the Lord Jesus, they misunderstood those scriptures and they fulfilled them, condemning and crucifying Jesus. Verse 29 says clearly, they fulfilled all that was written of him. Where was this written? Not the New Testament. The New Testament didn't exist, as Paul is saying these things. It was all written of him in the Old Testament. The Old Testament testifies to the need for and the coming of Christ. Look at verse 32. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, and by them he means Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, this he's fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he's spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. As Paul is reading the Old Testament, he sees it all as referring to Christ. And he's not just a weirdo. This thing that he just did with Psalm 16 and the resurrection of Christ, Peter does the same thing in Acts 2. They're all reading it the same way. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just a New Testament spin put on Old Testament stories. It's not just a way, a way of reading the Old Testament. It's the Holy Spirit inspired way of reading the Holy Scriptures. It's the right understanding of the message of the Old Testament. The gospel of Jesus Christ was promised to the fathers. The Psalms tell of this coming son. Psalm 16 in particular tells of his resurrection. The condemnation of Christ, his death on the cross, the resurrection, these are all prefigured, pictured, and prophesied in the Old Testament. The days of his incarnation were not just events that fulfilled prophecy. They were the focal points of God's plan for the world from the very beginning. It it has always, always been about Jesus. Acts 13 verse 38. Paul continues, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. God's, God's plan from the beginning has been to reconcile all things to himself through Christ, not just the Jews, but Gentiles also. And twice in this passage, Paul addresses his comments to the Jews and those among you who fear God, meaning the Gentiles. And the end of the chapter makes clear God's intent to offer salvation to the Gentiles. Everyone who believes in Christ is freed from sin and death and reconciled to God. Everyone. Now, verses 40 and 41 are terribly ironic. He says, don't let what is said in the prophets be fulfilled in you. Don't fail to believe this message after it's been told to you. But by the end of the chapter, that very thing will have happened. The Jews of the city will have rejected the truth, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and will thereby have condemned themselves. 
Skip down to verse 46 where Paul addresses these unbelieving Jews. He says, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now this command that the Lord that the, that Paul refers to this command from the Lord this is not something new to Paul he's quoting Isaiah 49:6 Salvation in Christ for the whole world Jew and Gentile was God's plan from eternity past and that is what God has been doing since the very first sin he's the whole time it's all been all about Jesus now let's back up a little bit and and zoom out to the, the whole picture of salvation history. This word salvation is used several times in this text. Salvation. Salvation from what? Our knee jerk is to say sin or hell. And in a sense that's right, but it's also not right. Sin is horrible. The reason that it's horrible, first and foremost, is because it separates us from God. J Jesus didn't die just so that we wouldn't have to deal with sin anymore. He did that, but not just that. He dealt with that penultimate disaster, sin, that penultimate disaster, that he might free us from the ultimate disaster, which is the loss of God suffered in the garden. Jesus removes the barrier of sin, not just so that there won't be a barrier of sin. He removes the barrier of sin that we might have God. And so God speaks a word of Christ in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 15, when he says that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, Christ's work was necessary not merely because this, this serpent was a pest that needed to be dealt with, and not merely because sin makes us miserable, not even just because sin sends us to hell. Christ's work was necessary and glorious and desirable because sin separated us from God. We lost God in the garden. And that is the worst news possible. All of salvation history, all of salvation history is the work of God's, it's the story of God's work to give himself back to us. And he gives himself back through the work of Jesus Christ, through Jesus' perfect life and atoning death and vindicating resurrection. He gives himself back through the work of Jesus Christ. But listen to this. That this is how central Jesus is to all of God's plan. God doesn't only give himself back to us through Jesus Christ. He gives himself back to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The, the, the exact imprint of his nature. In Christ, the whole fullness of God dwells bodily. Jesus himself said in John 14, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. God gives himself back to us through and in Jesus Christ. And so all of the stuff in the Old Testament, the promises, the covenants, the law, the sacrifices, the judges, these things were not all half measures. God's first meager attempts to give himself back. No, all of them were pictures of the one way that he planned to give himself back all along 
through and in the person and work of the Lord of glory, the eternal Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus. Jesus is the seed of the woman, is the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. Jesus is the seed of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He is the better sacrifice, able to take away sins, able to purify the evil conscience and usher man into the presence of God. Jesus is the deliverer who never dies. He is the king better than Saul, better than David. He is the God whose glorious presence we lost in Eden. The the Old Testament makes us cry out, not for some generic helper to relieve us from our sinfulness. It makes us cry out specifically for God in Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus is central to all that God does in history, in the Bible, in our lives. He's the only hope for mankind. The only hope for mankind, this problem that we, t- that we see in the Old Testament is not a uniquely Jewish problem because we are all descended from Adam. He is the only hope for mankind. And we need to stop framing this as strictly hope for salvation from hell. When we share a gospel where the main incentive is escaping hell, and we tell people that Jesus atones for your sins so that you don't have to go to hell, we share only the penultimate glory of the gospel. Listen, there, there are many things that make hell horrific. Chief among them, according to the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, is that it, this, this suffering there, it takes place away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Jesus atones for our sin so that we can have God in Christ. He removes sin for an ultimate purpose, a more ultimate purpose of our having God. This this is the ultimate gift of the gospel. I would submit to you that unless we say that to the lost person, we have not shared the full gospel. 1 Peter 3.18 says Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might do what? That he might bring us to God. Jesus saves us from hell. That's good news. It's not the best news of what Jesus does. The best news is that we receive God back in Christ. He's the only hope to return to God. He's the only hope. He's not only, he's, he's not only the hope for Bible believers. Don't, don't accept th- this lie in the world, this nonsense that what's true for you cannot be true for somebody else. He's not only the hope for Bible believers and not just the hope for Christians. He's not just the hope for Jews and Gentiles. He, he's the only hope for Muslims. He, he's the only hope for Hindus. He's the only hope for atheists. He's the only hope for wealthy suburbanites. He's the only hope for self-styled spiritualists. He's the only hope for sinners. And embracing and and proclaiming that truth, that Christ alone is salvation for the world, this is not a heroic act. Embracing that truth and proclaiming it is not heroic, and and we ought not congratulate ourselves when we do so as if we've achieved some gargantuan display of boldness in a hostile world. When we embrace and proclaim this truth, that Jesus alone is the hope of the world, that Jesus alone is the point of human history, we've not done anything heroic. We have simply acknowledged reality. That is what is real and true. It's not a heroic thing. 
It's God's grand plan to give himself back to man through and in the work of Jesus Christ. If you miss Jesus Christ, you miss everything. And if your life is centered on some agenda of your own making, that is, if you've not adopted God's grand agenda, you're not just playing small ball, and you're not even just wasting your life. You are missing the entire point of your existence. That leads us to what we are to do with this that we've seen this morning. Here it is. God's people are to live and serve with a focus on Christ. God's people are to live and serve with a focus on Christ. If this local expression of the body of Christ is obsessed with the gospel of Jesus, then here's a good question for us to consider. How obsessed are we? Do we really understand what the centrality of Jesus and his gospel should mean to our daily lives? Do we really understand the implications of this for how we live? And are we living accordingly? In other words, do we just sing like we're obsessed with it? Do we just preach like we're obsessed with it? But outside of this, of this building, we don't really give any indication that we're obsessed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, God's agenda must be our agenda. If it's not, there's no meaningful sense in which we live for him. So we, we can't be obsessed with the gospel here and not somewhere else. We can't have, have his agenda in this building and a different agenda every other minute that we're not here or every other minute that we're not with other Christians. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for whom... But for him who for their sake died and was raised, he, he saved us not that we would go on living for ourselves, have our own agenda, but that we would live for him. So our, our vocations, our talents, our, our places of service, our families, our homes, these are not our purpose. Rather, they, they are tools with which and spheres in which we fulfill our purpose of knowing Christ and making him known. We, we, we ought not have our own unique agenda if we are disciples of Jesus Christ. His agenda is our agenda. And if Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the point of everything that God does, what would it look like for us to adopt this agenda for ourselves in everyday life? What would this look like? I want to suggest to you three ways. Three ways. First of all, we need to know the gospel. We need to know it inside and out. It's just just an easy diagnostic question. If if you were to if you were responsible to explain who Jesus is and what he has done for sinners in under a minute, could you do that? If the gospel is the whole point, if Jesus is the whole point, we should be able to do that. Do you understand the gospel to the point that you are able to read all of the Bible in light of Christ, see all of history in light of Christ, world events in light of Christ? If he is the center of all things, we should be able to do that. This whole Bible, the whole thing, is about the story of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, if we're not able to read it that way, particularly the Old Testament, of course, we ought not panic. So if, if you don't know how to read the Old Testament in light of Christ, don't panic and don't despair. 
Because you're actually in good company. Peter tells us that in 1 Peter 1, even the prophets who wrote the Old Testament, they didn't completely get it as they were writing it. The Holy Spirit who was inspiring their writing didn't reveal the full meaning to them. But beginning with the apostles, now the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see the fullness of those texts that inherently refer to Christ. Now, here's how to learn to read the Bible the way the apostles did. This is what what we would suggest. First of all, pray that the Spirit would help you to learn to read the whole Bible like the apostles did. Pray to to God that the Holy Spirit would do this. The Holy Spirit, this is profound, okay, and yet very simple. The Holy Spirit who inspired the text and who taught the apostles to read all of Scripture in light of Christ, is the same Spirit that lives inside of you. It's not a different one. And it's not not like like a sergeant Holy Spirit and the general Holy Spirit's the one that inspired the Scriptures. The same Spirit, the author, in his mind as he's inspiring these writings, in his mind is the fullness of every text as it pertains to Christ. He lives inside of you. And what did Jesus say to us in John chapter 14? The Spirit will lead you into all truth. Pray that He would do so. Do you think He's going to hold out on you? I doubt it. Pray. Pray fervently that He would do that. Second, read the Old Testament. And read the New Testament, paying close attention to how the New Testament authors quote and understand the Old Testament. About one-third of the New Testament is composed of quotations, allusions, and echoes of the old. So learn, learn how the the apostles handle the Old Testament. Watch what they do. Go back and forth between the two, learning from the apostles. This morning I read I read one of the one of the prophets, and then this morning I went to I went to Romans nine and ten just to see what what does what does Paul do in Romans nine and ten. There is very little new material in Romans 9 and 10. He is pulling hand over fist from the Old Testament, plunking it in, plunking it in, plunking it in. Listen, if if you want to get a crash course in this, just get a taste for it. Read some of the Old Testament and then come to Romans. Read Romans and read some more of the Old Testament and come to Romans. And read more of the Old Testament and come to Romans. And ask yourself, how is he seeing this in that text? And pray it. Do it prayerfully. Holy Spirit, show me. Show me what he's doing. This kind of thing will allow us not just to know some gospel points that we can regurgitate in in a moment, which and it's important to be able to do that, but it will allow us to really understand the gospel in, in the full counsel of God so that the gospel is the framework for how we think, how we feel, how we view everything. We need not only to know the gospel, but second, we need to speak the gospel. It's quite difficult to understand how we could say that we've adopted God's agenda if we never talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is so central to that agenda. And I I would go so far as to say that if we never talk about the gospel of Jesus, if we never do, we haven't adopted God's agenda. We're, We're engaged in something else. When we adopt God's agenda, we talk about the gospel. And that speech about the gospel can take only two forms because there's only two kinds of people that we can talk to. There are those who have not been transferred 
into Christ's kingdom and those who have. And so the two kinds of speech that exist speaking the gospel are evangelism and edification. With, with the former, evangelism, we are sharing the glory of God in Christ so that people might be transferred into the kingdom of Christ. With edification, we are sharing the glory of God in Christ so that believers might be transformed into His image. It's the same tool. Isn't that wonderful? The same tool. Just to- talking about the glory of God in Christ, the gospel. If God's agenda is my, is my agenda, then speaking the gospel is not going to be regarded as, as the, these two activities, evangelism, edification, these two activities that, that I try to fit into my schedule around my other, my other responsibilities. Rather, my life, my whole life is oriented toward this gospel, and so I'll be talking about it all the time. And I'll see that as my reason for living is, is, is knowing Christ and making Him known. I'll constantly be prepared to share the gospel with the lost. I will make it one of my highest priorities to set aside time to minister the gospel to other believers. If, if I get this whole thing about Jesus being central to everything, He's going to be central to me, and there's going to be a shift in my mindset away from thinking that, that my other responsibilities are the main thing in my life. Instead, knowing Christ and making Him known will be the main thing in my life. All my other responsibilities are details that afford me the means and opportunities to do that main thing. In other words, I live this gospel. Live it. Third way of living out God's agenda is this. We need to commend the gospel with our lives. We need to commend the gospel with our lives. Everything that we say with our mouth is completely hollow if we are not being transformed into the image of Christ. If the gospel is central to us, we must commend it with our lives. Everything that we do will be driven by the desire to demonstrate the truthfulness of the gospel by how we live. We will live lives that, 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 that leave others able to make no other conclusion but that what we have said about Jesus is true. This has to be true. Look at that person's life. That person is transformed to the way that, that they say Jesus transforms people. Jesus rescues us from bondage to sin. He transforms us into His image. He is the whole point of everything. Our lives must show the truthfulness of those statements. Jesus is the whole thing. The whole thing. God's plan for the ages was to reveal Himself in Christ. In our identity, in our our purpose as believers, we all have the same one. We all have the exact same one. We are disciples who make disciples. Our life is about knowing Christ and making Him known. Let's pray together.
Father, it's very, it's very easy for us to recognize the truth of things that have been said this morning. It's very easy for us to recognize the truth that Jesus is. He's this, he is the center of all of history. He's the center of the Bible. Every, both testaments, old and new, they are about the glory of God in Christ. It's very easy for us to adopt that in our thinking. Lord, would you cause Christ to be central, to reign in our hearts? So that, that these things that we have that we've heard about Christ and we've believed that they would be the song of our souls. We would think these things in our dreams. We would wake in the night and Christ would be the first thing on our minds. Or would you give us one-track minds? One-track minds that go one place and that is your agenda for the world, knowing him, making him known. Father, there is, there is enough. There's enough leftover residue of our ungodly desires that some of us may hesitate to be excited about this thing that we we all have the same identity. We all have the same purpose because we have, we have grown up in a culture that celebrates individualism. Would you grant us, Father, the, the joy, the mercy of rejecting that extreme individualism for the celebration of an individual Jesus Christ? Would you give us the joy of being lost in Him so that we can know nothing more glorious. We can think of nothing more joyous than belonging to Christ, becoming like Him, introducing others to Him and reminding those who are already members of His kingdom of His glorious wonders. Pray these things in his name. Amen. Will you stand with